Welcome to the Future Now Media Podcast, where we believe a future now is a future one. I'm your host, Peggy Kim, and I'm the founder and president of the Future Now Media Foundation, which is a nonprofit leadership incubator for the media and entertainment industry. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to some of today's top industry leaders, executives, and professionals. We'll also hear about their personal and professional career journeys, what makes them tick, how they got to where they are today, and what they've learned along the way. And we'll also share some of the best content from our Future Now live events. Today's episode features a Future Now leadership talk which took place in September 2018 at the Sheen Center in New York City in front of a live studio audience. Our featured guest, Jennifer Miragord. She's the Executive Vice President of Content Distribution and Strategic Partnerships at Turner Networks. I first met Jennifer when she was being honored by Multichannel News as a Wonder Woman earlier that year. She was one of 12 women being celebrated for their demonstrated vision, commitment, and leadership across the industry. When I heard Jennifer's acceptance speech, I just knew that this is a woman that I wanted to know. And here we are. I'm so excited. I asked Jennifer about how she started her career, her path to executive leadership, and what she finds to be the most exciting and challenging parts of her job in content distribution today. Jennifer gets real about life and work, and at the end, we take questions from the audience. Take a listen. So we're going to talk content, we're going to talk distribution, and we're also going to talk about leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd love to kind of start with, um, how did you start your career? So great question. We've just spent a a little bit of time talking about, um, in the room, how people started, what they're thinking about in the future. And my, um, my career started um, really with a couple of internships in broadcast television. And, uh, I, and I, Peggy and I had a conversation about some of this, and I, I can't remember exactly what I shared, but my father uh, was an executive in television. Um, he, was, he, he ran a number of TV stations as I was growing up, and so we moved around a little bit. And, I didn't particularly want to be in television, and I think I had this idea that I didn't want to follow in his footsteps. It was this sort of mental thing. And I remember coming home from college one summer, and both of my parents said, you got to get a job. And so I started looking for a job, and I saw something posted for an internship at, at his TV station. We were living in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. and I. I said, and there wasn't the internet or anything, it was like in the newspaper, I guess, and I asked him, would it be, would, is there a chance that I could get this job? And he said, well, you need to talk to the hiring manager. And so I went in, and that was sort of my foot in the door. And so it was definitely a connection. Um, and the thing about it was I kind of liked it. It was, um, I was the receptionist for basically the summer. So I saw everybody who came in. I saw what the newsroom was doing. They were going out and covering stories. Um, It was really exciting. So I went back to school and uh, I think I had maybe an an internship in some other kind of field the next summer. But then um, once I graduated, I went to work at a broadcast TV station in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Started as an intern in research and then actually spent my time in research and in the TV news department and very quickly realized that I was not interested in journalism and I wasn't interested in that kind of um, fast-paced, always chasing the story environment. That just wasn't me. Uh, But I did enjoy the research part. And so I'm ultimately moved, I I guess I was there for a year and I moved down to Atlanta where I went to work for a TV station there and I ended up in the advertising sales group um, and started off actually as as an assistant. and uh, then moved into a research assistant job. And then after about four or five years in Atlanta, I, was, I got married and my husband at the time um, decided that he wanted to open a business in Hong Kong. And he had always been sort of, um, well actually he was very interested in, in Japan and had studied Japanese in college, but the opportunity and for what he was doing was in China and Hong Kong. And so he thought, that's close enough. I would love to do this. And I thought, I was up for adventure. And I thought, I'll do it too. I mean, of course, we're married and I'm excited. So I moved over to Hong Kong without a job. Um, and because I'd been in television, I thought, okay, I'll just you know 
keep, I'll look in television, but wow, it'd be a really great opportunity to maybe try something else. And so I, I did look and try to pursue some other opportunities. So for example, I thought about Coke. Coca-Cola based in Atlanta, maybe I could go to work for Coke in Hong Kong. Or their ad agency, McCann Erickson at the time, had a huge office in Hong Kong. And I did some interviews, but it was really hard. And this is, this is a, I, it was kind of a learning for me. It was hard to make that transition from, from TV into something else, particularly, particularly in a, a, basically a culture that I was not familiar with. I, knew, I really didn't know much about Asia. Um, I didn't have any experience in Asia. So Asia media might be an easier move than packaged goods or consumer goods in, in Asia. And so I ended up interviewing with a lot of um, media companies and ended up at Turner. And so I joined Turner, which is an Atlanta-based company, in Hong Kong. And it was through a connection. I called a person I knew in Atlanta and said, can you introduce me to anyone? And it took many, many months. And I, I heard some stories earlier. It's, it's a long process. Mm -hmm. It was um, it, and I almost think of it, I had that career in Atlanta, but my career in Hong Kong, it was my first real job where there was, um, it, there was a career path I could kind of see. And I started off in a sales planner role, which is um, sort of one step up from a sales assistant. But it was a big stretch for me because I knew nothing about media in Asia. <laughs> Nothing. And at the time, Turner, um, our main business was CNN. CNN is available all over the world, and CNN International um, was sort of the channel that people watched when they were traveling hotel rooms, international business travelers, and it had a pretty healthy advertising sales business. And so this sales planner role was in that. Mm -hmm. I did that for maybe only a year and got promoted to be account manager where I was actually selling advertising on my own. and. Um, it was really exciting, and I worked with some of the people in, in the New York office here at Turner who worked at CNN, um, and we did, um, we did kind of, I guess, global deals for certain clients. I remember one of my big ones was, was Philips. Um, the, at the time, you know, they still are, a, I guess they're sort of a, they, 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 make, they made TVs, they made white goods, mm -hmm. and they were a global brand, and so we did a big advertising campaign all over Asia. How did you learn what, I mean, you went in not knowing really the job, right? So I think, and this is key when you're starting out, you just, you ask tons of questions. You, you act like you're eager to learn because you are eager to learn if you're that kind of personality. And the other thing that I think played in my favor is, is that it was a growing business. Um, we had, the, the company had only been in Asia, um, Turner had only been in Asia for, maybe three years at the time I arrived. And so it was growing by leaps and bounds. And that creates opportunities for everybody, everybody who's, who's, who's you know, trying to, to kind of move up in their career. And so there were a lot of people that were sort of in the same boat. Mm -hmm. um, and media and international media was in its infancy at that time in Asia. And so you know, my experience in the US was somewhat applicable, it was more kind of learning the cultural norms in the various countries where we operated was, was probably my biggest thing. And so, you know, I, at, so I, I did the CNN job and then for, I guess that was three years, and then I moved into what we call Turner Entertainment Networks Asia, which was primarily Cartoon Network. Um, and that was a job that, that was, we had Cartoon Network all over Asia and it was country specific. And so I spent a ton of time in India I spent a ton of time in Australia, like complete opposite yeah. places, and I love them both. Um, and then I did just spend some time in Northern Asia, in South Korea. Um, ultimately, I did spend a fair amount of time in China, um, not with Cartoon Network, but a startup that we had there, mm -hmm. um, a Chinese a joint venture. Um, you weren't, you, were you excited about that job with Cartoon Network? So, great, great question. CNN was a prestigious brand, and it still is a prestigious brand. At the time, Cartoon Network was a startup, mm -hmm. and I was very um, unenthused about the opportunity, but it was a promotion. There were a couple things. So, it was a startup, it was growing, it, it didn't have the prestige of CNN, 
And the office location wasn't in the heart of Hong Kong like the CNN office. It was out sort of what you would call the industrial suburbs. And so it wasn't glamorous. It was just, you know, it, it seemed like a good opportunity because it was more responsibility. Well, it didn't take me very long to figure out that once I got in that environment, I was I was going to thrive and I was also going to be able to learn and grow in my career much more quickly at a startup, at a, at a company that was growing all over Asia or a brand that was growing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, kind of a, a piece of advice is don't be afraid of taking the assignment that may not be the most glamorous. Um, this was a little bit easy because it was a promotion. I mean, but it was probably from a manager to a director or something at that point in my career, so it wasn't a huge promotion. But I went from managing maybe two people to, my. by the time I left Asia, um, I was there eight years, um, yeah. I think I had a team of 50 and a bunch of direct reports and offices in all of these countries all over Asia Pacific, and it was, it was one of the most amazing experiences and, and something I'll probably never be able to replicate in my career. Um, and, and it was, a lot of it had to do with the stage of the business and that it was a startup. And so anybody, anybody that's watching or in the audience, if you're nervous about that startup, you should try it at some point in your career because it really allows you to test um, some muscles that you didn't know you had necessarily had. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you work, you work like crazy, and and I, I think one of the things that was funny for me was when I moved back to the United States. I transferred back to the U.S. within Turner. The pace was so much slower, and I, and I, there's probably a difference. You came between, back to Atlanta. Yeah, I came back to Atlanta. There's probably a difference between New York and Atlanta, but the difference between Hong Kong and Atlanta, <laughs> it, it was the it was the reverse culture shock. I mean, people talk about culture shock. There was I had culture shock moving to Hong Kong, but the, I think it was even worse moving from Hong Kong to Atlanta, where I had lived before, by the way. So it wasn't it wasn't as if I'd never been to Atlanta, but you know. People went home at 5:30, and they didn't go out for drinks every night. And they didn't, you know, there was this. You're walking down. Well, first of all, you don't walk anywhere in Atlanta. You drive everywhere. You walk down the street in Hong Kong, and you're bumping into people, which actually doesn't really even happen in New York. People avoid each other. In Asia, you sort of kind we of try you try, you, yeah, you, we you, try to avoid each but other. But you, you yeah. end up. It's just different. And Hong Kong's very crowded, and so um, it was. It was an amazing experience. So that's sort of my career. So I. I, the only thing I would say is that, so when I moved back to Atlanta, there were some personal reasons. I had I'd gotten divorced when I was in Hong Kong, and I'd, I guess probably t three years before I moved back. And my parents were very tired of me living that far away. And so there was a lot of that kind of pressure that, that made me start looking to move. Mm -hmm. And so I told my boss at the time, who was based in London, that um, I wanted well, I guess he was based in New York. I had a boss for a while in London, but my boss in New York, I said, I want to move back. Um, I'll, I'm going to move back regardless of whether I get a job in, at, at Turner. I assumed I would get a job at Turner in New York. That was sort of my plan because I thought the New York to, or the Hong Kong to New York transition would be easier. But I ultimately interviewed all over the place and my boss who hired me, um, we just, it was just this sort of one of those occurrences you'll have at times in your career where you just click with somebody. And he had, I, I did informational interviews, which I'm sure a lot of you are doing. And, you know, it helps if you're already in the company, obviously, when you're doing informational interviews. But when you're moving from Hong Kong to Atlanta, and in our company, and it's still true to this day, the domestic group doesn't know that much about what the international groups are doing. I would go around interviewing and people were sort of like, what, who is she? Hong Kong, how is that applicable? And they didn't necessarily respect that you had this interesting experience. Well, my boss, Coleman Breland, he's not, my, he's not still my boss, but the guy who, who offered me the opportunity to move, he just got it. He saw, he, he saw that I had this, this passion mm -hmm. and this drive and this, this interest um, to learn new things. And he took a massive chance on me because I, my entire career in Hong Kong was in ad sales. And I um, 
kind of assumed that I would move into an ad sales job in the US, though that would have also been very, very hard because I knew nothing about the TV business in the United States. I'd been gone eight years. Mm -hmm. And I knew nothing about sales in the US, frankly, because I didn't, I didn't do that. I did research and, um, before I moved to Hong Kong. So he took a chance on me. He was in content distribution. And um, I, <laughs> he created a job for me. Um, which I think he was planning on doing some restructuring. It, the restructuring unfortunately happened after I arrived, so it, it was sort of an awkward, you'll have those times in your career too where you, you come into a place and you don't necessarily know um, who your colleagues are, you don't, know, you don't know what the hierarchies are, and there were a lot of changes right after I arrived, so that was sort of an uncomfortable thing, but ultimately, I learned the business. I started off in a marketing role within content distribution and then moved over into the actual um, distribution of content, which is very, very different from sales. Sales is transactional. It's very, very quick. You, you do lots of deals. Um, and in content distribution, there are very long deal cycles. Um, and you negotiate for a very long time. And you, if, you're, if you're selling um, either pieces of content or what, what what a, most of our revenue comes from mm -hmm. is, is actual linear network distribution. Um, and you're dealing with um, Comcast and Verizon and my new parent company, AT&T, DirecTV. You negotiate for a long time and you do deals for very long periods of time um, from anywhere from one year to five years. And even, I mean, there were times when I think deals were, were even longer than five years. Wow. Um, and was so, that difficult to make that kind of? I mean, uh, that's a lot of transition. I just, right? I, I had a hard time mentally with with the speed of with, things. With yes, how slow it was. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, it's not slow anymore. Um, it the, the business has changed so much that now you're trying to like catch oh my up with god. <laughs> I mean, it's it's and that's because of technology, and we, right. I mean, we can talk a little yeah. bit about that. But the other thing, and I think, and I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds because content distribution is pretty complicated, but um, there are lengthy um, agreements that you negotiate with um, the partners that distribute the content. Uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 pages of you know, legal documents. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm an analytical person and, and have often thought that maybe I should have been an, a lawyer. Um, but I had to learn all of that. And it was, it was um, you, you know, you partner with the legal team. But the, the detail and all the nuances of things that you worry about when you distribute um, a network like CNN or TNT and you give those rights over to somebody that, that you know, basically they're middlemen in between the viewers and the content owner, um, very complicated and getting much more complicated because of technology. Right. And so my learning curve was very, very steep. So yeah, there was cultural you know, change, a huge cultural change for me and then just the job change. But I will say that I, I transitioned into a marketing role, my first role back in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that was, while I hadn't done marketing per se, it, this was um, business to business marketing. It was fairly easy for me to learn that. Right. And it was a good way to get so my way into get, the get next into thing. something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a long answer. That's okay. <laughs> so for, um, for those who may not understand, you know, what's involved in content distribution, mm -hmm. can you kind of mm -hmm. put that in a nutshell? Like, what, it, what is that and what's involved in that? So many of the, all, most of the, me the big media companies who have TV networks um, distribute their content, or there's a history of pay TV distribution distributed through, um, First of all, cable operators, so the likes of Comcast and here in New York now Charter, which was Time Warner Cable. Um, and Turner, in, in particular, has 10 domestic TV networks. Um, we license those networks typically as a, a bundle to a Comcast, a Verizon, a Charter. And they buy our content. They buy us a. They buy 
um, our networks based on the number of subscribers they have and they pay us a subscriber a fee per network per subscriber per month and so this calculates into billions of dollars billions with a B um, all of my competitor all of our competitors do the same thing um, we have a sister company HBO has a slightly different model but they also have relationships with all of these um, companies like DirecTV and Comcast and Verizon and now new companies like YouTube TV and um, Hulu Live and um, we just did a deal with a company called Fubo which started off as a sports um, mm -hmm. what we call virtual MVPD multi multi-channel video program distributor virtual meaning that it's via the internet and so it's very easy to sign up for a um, YouTube TV um, DirecTV has a product called DirecTV Now mm -hmm. so there are a lot of new companies that we deal with which has made our business um, I think I said busy, complicated. Uh, we're always sort of, you know, tr scrambling to to get things done because there's a lot going on in the space. So we distribute, sell these networks to these aggregators. Um, we also uh, strike deals with companies where we sell some of our programming um, on a subscription VOD basis. So that's SVOD. So to Netflix. Um, to, uh, for, I just read something today, um, a, a review, I, I think it was from Australia, this is kind of interesting. It was from a publication in Australia that was talking about how Netflix is, they really need to ramp up, to come up with some original Netflix hits because this particular writer in, in Australia was saying that the two shows that, that he had just watched that he loved were, were shows that had been licensed from um, other companies and one of them was The Alienist which they licensed from TNT Turner it hasn't been licensed in the US interestingly it's only available internationally <coughs> but we do sell some of our shows to those those kinds of companies like a Hulu Amazon also has a SVOD business um, and then something that's very new and if you end up working for a media company, this is going to be part of your life. Our, we're launching our own products directly to consumers, not using a middleman. Um, so, uh, sister company HBO has a product like that that goes direct to consumers. They also have a product that they, they license through distributors. We have um, a product called Filmstruck, which is um, for uh, film lovers, um, sort of a very niche audience mm -hmm. of um, art house films and then some classic films. We also have a product called Boomerang which is an offshoot of a kids, pro kids network that we have that features um, Hanna-Barbera, Looney Tunes, um, some of the Warner Brothers which is a sister company cartoons. And then our latest venture is something called BR Live. We have a, we have a um, a site called Bleacher Report, and it's um, sports um, targeting yeah. mainly young men. Okay, <laughs> most every every young man knows Bleacher Report. We now have a, a a service that's live sports on through Bleacher Report, and we started I guess yesterday, Tuesday, sorry, two days ago, um, with Champions League UEFA soccer. Um, so that's on Bleach Report Live, and that's kind of our new thing that we're mm -hmm. that we're working on, and that's direct to consumer. We still have to strike platform deals. So, uh, kind of a nuance: you have an app, and you need to get that app distributed on Apple, Google, Roku, um, all of those. So that's handled by my group. Now it's a different thing. Right. You don't make your money that way necessarily. Um, you, you might share revenue with an Amazon because they promote your app, but it's, it's the, the primary way you're making your revenue is through subscriptions directly right. with, a, with a consumer, which we've always, typically our business has been through a middleman and that's kind of the evolution is to get to the consumer because of the importance of data, which is take that's us a down a whole nother. That's a whole nother, yeah, that's a whole nother, yeah. What's the favorite thing that you do? Um, so I, I love 
um, managing people. Um, I love mentoring. I love, um, it, it, it's, it can be exhausting managing people, but it, it's also the most fulfilling thing. Um, I do a lot of formal and informal mentoring uh, at Turner, which is sort of not necessarily part of my day job. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentor the people who report into me and my team, but I also, we have um, a number of mentorship programs that I'm invol involved in, and I've done some things through WICT in terms of mentoring, and right. so I, that's, that's Women what, in Cable Telecommunications. That's what I really, you know, kind of gets me up every day. I love it. Um, and, you know, t solving problems and helping people and connecting people um, is really, you know, what, what's my favorite part of my job. Yeah, and that's actually why we, that what, that's what drew me to you because um, Jennifer was honored earlier this year as a Wonder Woman by Multi-Channel News. And um, you were sharing about, I think it was a video clip also that, about showing you kind of giving back. You were traveling. I'm trying to remember was, which one. You were it was. working with some nonprofit volunteering and. Oh right, yeah. I, well, I'm I'm on the board of something called. Well, it started in New York Covenant House. Um, mm -hmm. Covenant House is a homeless shelter for youth, and I'm on the board of Covenant House Georgia, which is the largest Covenant House in the Southeast. And I think I was doing something yeah. for that. And somebody actually at the. Wonder Woman event came up to me afterwards because it. I, I guess I mentioned Covenant House in the speech. It's funny how I can't even remember what I said. <laughs> um, I was nervous. Um, you didn't look nervous. Oh, I've got a good. It's like right, exactly. Um, but somebody came up to me afterwards and said she was involved in Covenant House New York, and it was really cool because um, it's an amazing organization. But I, I, I do a little bit of mentorship through there. That's more about just giving back and, and fun. I, I do a lot of fundraising actually, which mm -hmm. I found to be um, highly entertaining and enjoyable. Which I think um, welcome. Um, going, I think that goes to my 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 background in sales. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, I don't really do sales in my career now, um, but fundraising is like sales, and if you're yeah. passionate about the project. It's and easy the, to sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so wow. I get a lot out of that. So I wanna open this up for questions. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, <laughs> you can always count on Camilla. Um, yes, I was taking notes, and I'm so fascinated by you. So one of the things that I've learned about you from what you've just said is that you love trying new things and that you said, you mentioned you have um, a steep learning curve so you kind of had to jump into these positions that you really didn't know too much about. Um, one of my favorite things is that I'm trying to lean into is failing fast. So I kind of mm -hmm. want to learn more from you about how you got comfortable with failing hmm. and learning from your oh, mistakes. And great question. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, I'll be really honest. I was not comfortable with failing. <laughs> I think I'm much more comfortable now, but I think when you're starting off in your career, it is really hard. And so I give you a lot of credit if that's something you're leaning into because I um, kind of set the bar pretty high. And um, Are you an A-type personality? I'm an A-type <laughs> personality. Um, and so I don't like to fail. And I think that's something that as I've matured, I've realized that it really, you, you grow through, through failure. And if you, don't, if you don't admit failure or if you don't kind of push yourself, you're not gonna grow. Um, and so I'd say it's really probably been in the last 10 years that I've preached that concept more. Um, because I think when you're starting out in, in your career, you want to you want to sh you want to just shine sh shine and and, and, and not be the one star. that anybody sees anything wrong with right mm -hmm. and and so I think it does depend a little bit about who your manager is and the, who the people you work with are I mean do you have that kind of comfort zone where the culture of your company allows you to do that um, what was I your biggest failure ha <laughs> there's so many of <laughs> them no. can, um, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um, I don't know that I've had a massive failure per se. I've had some mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that I would call anything I've ever done a Because the best failures are the ones that you actually learn from. And yeah. You, it's just your step to success. But what was like that? So. You're like, oh, damn. 
I mean, I had one. I had a really small one. I mean, I, I want to just share this because this is like yeah. this is an example of I of just it, it, yesterday. This is a silly thing, but I'm in charge of the the holiday gifts that we give to our clients, and I kind of downplay that. I, I think of it as oh, it's just something I have to do, and I don't really particularly like it. And so I have a team. That, somebody on my team came in and showed me a couple ideas, and I said that thing. So. I didn't ask to see a sample of it. It showed up on my desk yesterday, and it was horrendous. <laughs> and they had already ordered them all. And they were in a warehouse somewhere. And there are not that many of them. There were 200 of them, and there are these glasses. And they were so ugly. And <laughs> Happy holidays. it was a pretty big, and then these are, you know, Brian Roberts, the head of Comcast, or whatever. This is who's getting this thing. And it's, it looks like it came from you know, I don't know, the bargain store, the, the dollar store. That's how bad it was. So I had to admit that it was my fault to my boss that I didn't see a sample. And I, um, I figured it out. <laughs> we are ordering something else, and we are selling those things back. Um, the good news is that they were sold out. So that, that was a sort of a minor thing, but it, they happen every day yeah. where you just, um, you have to have the confidence. I was kind of trying to figure out, should I admit it to him that, well, he's going to notice that the gift wasn't what we picked out. So I've, I owned up to it. Um, did you have mentors throughout your career? I did. And I think um, somebody said this earlier. I often didn't know that they were mentors until after the fact. Um, I had Why? A, because I, I wasn't, maybe I'm, I'm Earlier in my career, I was stubborn, and so I didn't, I wasn't as accepting of feedback, um, and I, I, I wish I had been more accepting. And I have a great example. Um, when I worked at Cartoon Network in, in Hong Kong, um, the head of Cartoon Network, uh, she, she, actually, she's, if she only knew that I was doing this right now, she could be watching this on Facebook, but, um, uh, Celia Wu was her name. She, I didn't report into her. I reported into the ad sales structure. And she would often come up to me after a meeting and give me some unsolicited advice. And I was young in my career. And I had a tendency to be in a, a in, in meetings, sort of speak my mind. Um, and I've seen I've seen that characteristic of people on my team now, and I you know I've I've thought about it. It's like that's exactly what I used to do. Now, I didn't I wasn't well, a loud what, what mouth, was, was, but I was a junior person, yeah. and maybe the way that I did it wasn't as tactful. Like you know we'd have an issue about something, and I just interrupt or I'd you know spout out something. I remember Celia coming up to me after one of these occurrences and saying, you know, I just want to give you this advice, and she was. She wasn't that much older than I was, but she was definitely more more seasoned in in that field in her in her in her career than I was, and I was really offended by the. It wasn't even the way she did it. I just didn't want to hear it. And she said, "You need to think before you speak." And it's such a silly small thing, but just take take that take ten seconds, take fifteen seconds, think about who the audience is. Think about the way you want to come across. And I, I remember almost breaking down in tears because I, to go back to your other question, I didn't like to fail. And she was sort of saying that I'd failed. Several, several years after that, now she moved on. She left, she left Hong Kong and moved to, um, to California or Seattle. But she left Asia and there was a new head. And, I think I was mentoring, doing some mentoring, and I, it just, all of a sudden, that, that event that, hap, that, hap, that occurred to me, and I realized that, wow, she had been an amazing mentor to me, and I never sought her out, mm. but she recognized that she could help me, and she cared. I mean, now I see that. She actually cared enough to give me that feedback. And um, I actually mentioned that in a, in a speech that I gave to, I don't know, a group of people. And, and I, I talk about that, that 
that time all the time. And so that's an example of somebody that I never recognized as a mentor, but she helped me so much. And then other people I, it were, were more formal. Mm -hmm. um, I had a guy that I worked with in India who was probably the most amazing sales executive I've ever seen. He was the most aggressive to an extreme, which I would, would never have been, but I learned so much from him. And he, he offered, you know, he offered so much of himself uh, to help me learn the culture in India, to help me learn about sales. Um, and, you know, I, I think really helped me sort of progress in my career in sales in Asia. He, he was somebody that was sort of a, he was a contractor for Turner. He didn't even work, we, we contracted with people before we opened offices in India. And um, in, incredible advice that man gave me. And um, sadly, he lost his life in the bombing, or the, not bombing, the hostage situation that happened in Bombay 10 years ago, this oh, wow. Thanksgiving, when um, a number of uh, Pakistani um, terrorists, I guess you would call them, entered two luxury hotels in India and killed a number of people, and just this freak thing. And so I wrote a letter to his wife telling him, because I never had told him what that meant to me, what he did for me in my mm -hmm. career. And I, it's one of those things that just, you know, kind of chokes wow. me up when I, I think about that kind of powerful um, uh, experience. And, and I think all of you will have that. You'll find that person that... Um, really invests in you. Really invests in you, yeah. And then, you know, I, I'd say later in my career, it's been harder to find those people. I think it's more peers um, that you kind of... Mm -hmm. Let's you learn do. from, yeah. you know, and, and, and through organizations like Women in Cable or this organization and meeting some of the great people that, whether it's somebody who, um, who is a, you know, sort of the same level or age that I am or, or somebody that's a participant in a program, I learn a tremendous amount from the people that I've mentored or kind of worked with over the years. I mean, that's yeah, it's two that way sort street, of reverse right? mentoring. Yeah, it's a two-way street because it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's a relationship. Yeah, exactly. Um, any other questions? No questions? Yeah. yeah. So, you've obviously been to so many different countries. You've been all over the U.S., I'm assuming. Mm. How do you adapt to so many different contexts? Like as far as like, you know, yeah. I've been to you from different cultures, going from New York City to Atlanta yeah. and then wherever else. Like how does like who you are, like stay consistent in all those different things while at the same time trying to adapt to the different situation? So that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, you have to, you have to want to be that person to be in all those situations. Um, I, have, I have colleagues or had colleagues who I worked with in Asia who hated it, <laughs> who Americans who had to come over to work or to visit and didn't enjoy being in those contexts and, and learning how to act in South Korea as a woman or in China as a woman mm -hmm. or in India as a woman, as a woman with blonde hair. Um, and I just, I sort of found it I have, a, I have a big spirit of adventure. I just, I love it. And I love to travel to this day. I don't get to travel very often I, outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. I only, not for work, I do it for pleasure now. But you, you have to respect, you have to have a, a high level of respect for the people that you're working with or visiting. And that's, that's you know, that's kind of the, at the, at the, at the most basic level. And if they understand that you have that respect, they become more open to mm -hmm. sharing with you what, you know, what they're feeling, what's different. Um, because every, everywhere I've worked in my career, so many of these, so many cultures were very, I mean, vastly different. The way you, the way you handle a business meeting um, in, in China is very, very different than what you would do in India. And it's, it's really, you know, I think the first time you, I would ever go into a place that I was unfamiliar with, I'd kind of be meek and I'd sort of, I wouldn't be that person I was describing around the conference room right. table right. Sh shooting off my mouth. I would yeah, be, 
I, that was that was around people I thought I was comfortable with, right? And I colleagues that I worked with. But in a, in a meeting in China, I would be um, respectful and quiet probably for the first couple of meetings and try to figure out you know what's going on and get advice and not be afraid to ask advice and um, and you know am I doing this right and you know what is what is the correct way to handle you know this situation. Um, but I, I do think there's a little bit of, it's, it's your personality a little bit about whether you want to put yourself in those places. And not everybody does. Um, yeah, I do. I like it, oh, actually. It's, it's I so do much miss fun. It. I mean, I've thought a little bit about <clears throat> would I ever do international work again. And my challenge now is I have two daughters who are 10 and 12, and I don't want to travel that much. And I. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to living somewhere, you know, and with my family. Yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my husband, I think, would probably be open to that as well. But it just—it's harder. It was—it was the perfect time for me in my career. I was there basically. I was in Asia basically through my 30s, and you know, late 20s, late 30s. So mm -hmm. um, it was—it was—it was a great time, and you know, without children, and for a while without even a husband. So. <laughs> Any other, any other questions? Yes. <laughs> what do you think in, is the future of media? Wow. Um, I think it's an incredibly exciting time right now for everybody that's looking in media. Um, it is, and I said this earlier, it's, 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 it's somebody, actually somebody else said this, so I'm gonna steal, I think it was from Nick, I'm gonna steal it from you, Nick, that it's hard for people who've been in media for a long time because it's changing so quickly, but for people who are entering, there is so much opportunity. It's, it's really exciting, and I think the future is um, a change in the way that we've done ad sales. Um, that data is gonna become very, very important, and that's also influencing the way that um, that television shows are being made, the way they're being distributed, and certainly the way they're being sold if they're ad supported. Um, I think the whole idea of networks being distributed by these aggregators, I'm not sure that will be around forever. Um, there might be aggregators that are owned by companies like Comcast that also own content companies like AT&T that also own content, and then there might be some others that go direct to consumer. Um, you see, if you read in the media press, Disney is gonna have a, a direct to consumer business product. I mean, that's gonna be really exciting because they have a massive library yeah. of content, and they're gonna stop selling it to third parties, and they're gonna keep it all to themselves. There's so much opportunity in all of that. Um, in regards to content distribution for some who, who someone who might be just entering the mm -hmm. business, yeah, um, what does that role look like? What is like the title of somebody who's coming into content distribution as, as a newbie? Um, so we have sort of an entry level role, which is a sales operations coordinator, um, and so that's somebody that c could do a lot of different things related to working with our third-party distributors, so helping figure out whether um, all of our networks are distributed properly, whether they're paying us correctly. We do some marketing with them um, and, and doing that. There are also um, some opportunities more on the, the digital side of things and direct-to-consumer side of things. So um, assistant or coordinator level roles in, uh, say, um, subscriber acquisition, which is um, a, a, a role that exists across digital where you're looking t to get subscribers to your service. Um, and so there are a lot of those jobs. Um, what makes for a great candidate? Somebody who is eager to learn, asks a lot of questions, isn't afraid to, to take on uh, more work, to ask for more work. Um, when I'm interviewing, sort of the, more of the entry level people, I really look for somebody that is just so insanely curious because that just shows me that, that whatever happens, because the business is changing so quickly, mm -hmm. they're gonna raise their hand and they're gonna say, I wanna do that. Um, 
I have a piece of our business right now that reports into me that um, it's new, which is podcasts, which I, it's funny, oh, we're talking, okay. um, and that's an interesting business, very hard to make money. And we have maybe one or two entry level jobs that we'll, we will have here in New York on the sales side for that. And that person just, you know, needs to show up a, a passion for that for podcasts and if you come into a an interview and you really that's not your thing you know you can see it right away and so I think that's the other thing is, is so do is, they have to specifically love podcasts or you're looking for somebody who just loves to sell stuff I think they need to love podcasts or at least pretend they do <laughs> and do it in a way that you can't tell that they're pretending because I I think this is something I hear from my peers all the time um, and we have a very interesting brand called Adult Swim, which is some of you may have heard of. It's yeah. the Cartoon Network. It happens at night and it targets 18 to 24 year old, primarily male. Um, um, and there are a lot of great jobs that come up through Cartoon Network. It's based or through Adult Swim. It's based in Atlanta. And I always tell people who are looking for those jobs, do not go in there unless you, you can act like you know what Robot Chicken is, Rick and Morty is, you gotta show that you have a passion or they will, you won't, that, that interview will be the last, the, the shortest interview you've ever been on. And so. That's part of preparation It too, is, and right? in any job. So. But I, you can see, you know, it's so important because these, these positions are so competitive. It's so hard mm -hmm. to get into some of these companies right now. And so passion about whatever it is is really key. Um, and then in general, curiosity about media, I think. Mm -hmm. What's, yes. What are some of the ways that you keep up with industry news? I uh, follow a lot of different um, publications, blogs. Um, you know, the one that I've really been enjoying recently, and I don't know, I, I get this daily update from Variety. And that one is, is really not so much about my business. It's about um, content. And I didn't used to get that daily, and I just maybe six months ago started getting that. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Um, I, uh, I get a Wall Street Journal daily. It's the CMO uh, thing, and that, that's mm -hmm. more on marketing. But that always has, it's so much about this business. And they tend to do a pretty good job. For, for, for a more tech-related, I, I read Recode. Um, <laughs> I do read every read. single That's a morning. Lot of stuff I get up read, really right? early. Okay. I, I am a I'm a morning like I, I I go work out. I go I get to the office early, and I'm typically I read that when I first get in the to the office. What time do you get to the office? Um, between seven thirty and eight. What you get <laughs> in that early? And yeah. how long do you stay? Till five thirty or six. Unless wow. we're in a deal crunch, then I'll be much later. But I'm always, I mean, I hate to say this, but I'm always available. I mean, I'm checking my yeah. emails. I'm not. Are you a workaholic? No, I'm not a workaholic. So I have too many 12 things. 12-hour person. Well, but no, but let me <laughs> tell you. 12-hour day person. I, I go to bed early. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, to, to get up at 5 every day, you got to go. I can't, I mean, I need so my you get, sleep. So you go to bed at what, 9? 9.30. 9.30. 10. Yeah, I mean, I, to get up that early, I've got to. Wow. Early I need my seven hours, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, did, did you have a question? Yeah. It, it's a two-in-one question. Okay. So uh, I don't think I missed the answer. I dropped it before, but what, what is it that you're so passionate about media, and what other industry do you think your skill set and your personality would have fit into? Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, so... <laughs> You know, the longer you get in your career, you, you start to question, you know, not question, but what, you know, what, what would be my next move? Um, there's, there's so much change in the industry. The job is getting harder. Um, but when you start to think about this business and what you're exposed to and how fun it is, and to be able to come into work every day and, and to talk about Robot Chicken and Rick and Morty and uh, the Alienist on TNT and oh my gosh I love sports and we have the NBA and now we have Champions League soccer and we've got NCAA March Madness on Turner. That's what I love and so 
as, as hard as it gets sometimes. Um, you know, I don't work, we, we, we laugh, this is terrible, but there, there are a lot of companies based in Atlanta. I don't work for Newell Rubbermaid. I don't work for UPS. Um, even Coke seems kind of boring as compared to media. Um, so that's, that's really it. I mean, it's just, and then the other part of your question, what, would, what else would I do? Um, I've, I've become, and maybe this has to do with age, but I've become more interested in education. Um, and I could see doing something in education and, and, and some of my skills being transferable. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it goes to mm -hmm. the thing that I like about my job, which is sort of the leadership piece and the mentoring, and, and there's lots of stuff I like about my job, yeah. but the thing that you know, really gets me up in the morning. Um, we actually didn't even get to the leadership part. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in terms of leadership, did you, did you have like, how did you learn about leadership? How did you become the leader that you are? Did you go through a formal training so, process? I know you did do. I've done a lot of. I've done, I've yeah. had a, I have had the opportunity in my career to have a lot of leadership training, and thank you, Turner, for that. Um, but so they actually paid for you to to be go to different programs and things. But that was I was already probably a leader by the time you know a leader right. per se by the time um, I went to any of those programs. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know why I was thinking about this. I think I was thinking about it because of my daughters, and I was trying to figure out whether both of them, they're not, neither of them is that much like me. They're different, and I'm trying to figure out where, you know, what their characteristics are, what they're gravitating towards. And mm -hmm. I think I was always somebody who, who wanted to be a leader or acted as a leader growing up. Um, I was the editor of my school newspaper. I did, I was captain of my soccer team, and in high school, I, you know, I had leadership things that I did all through my school, mm -hmm. and so you, you know, I think that was just innate and right. inherent born, inside. Born a leader, you had that. I had it in me, and so yeah. then the first, you know, kind of when you, you you become a leader of projects potentially in your career before you become a leader of managers or, or manager of people or leader of people, um, you lead uh, thought thought leader. And then maybe you get some direct reports that you manage. And we talked about this a lot at Turner in the early days. We didn't have any management training program. People were just thrown into it. And that resulted in some pretty horrific managers, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I think then later, you know, you started to develop, um, we at one point had something called the PDC, Professional Development Center, where there were all these classes that you could take. But early, in the early days, it was, you were sort of just thrown into it. And so you, you just kind of experimented, like what feels right. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, hopefully you had a good mentor or boss who you could right. kind of model behavior after. Right. Um, because there wasn't really any rule, bo mm -hmm. rule book. And I, I think in startups, it's sort of the same thing where there's not necessarily training it's you're just sort of thrown into it right. and um, I don't know if that answers the question but that's sort of yeah so how would you describe your leadership style um, I am NOT a micromanager I um, and, and maybe sometimes I should be more of a micromanager um, but I'm, I'm somebody who likes to give my team a lot of autonomy um, and help them when they've faltered or failed. Um, I am a um, pretty, I would say, transparent person, and that comes across in my leadership. I'm open, I'm pretty candid, and I get, I've gotten good feedback about that over the years. Mm -hmm. Like when you're, when you're sort of at, at my level and you've gone through leadership programs and you do these things called 360, um, 360 degree uh, analysis on yourself where your peers, your team, your boss all um, basically give you feedback in a formal way. And um, that's kind of tough, right? Oh. Especially since you didn't really like getting feedback. Oh my god. I mean, I haven't had one in a while. I probably am due for one, actually, <laughs> um, to see if I've, I've slipped anywhere. But I, I've, I've always gotten good feedback about being somebody who's open, um, 
open to new ideas, uh, a consensus builder, a team player. Um, where, where my feedback has been more negative is, oh, could I be more aggressive in terms of, um, I don't, I don't want to say, like kind of going after things. You know, women sometimes have that, that you run that, that risk of appearing as sort of the bitch or the whatever. I've never mm -hmm. been accused of that. Mm -hmm. But maybe I could have been more like that in my career, and um, and that was a negative. To maybe not I do didn't. That? Maybe I didn't get a certain assignment because I wasn't as aggressive as somebody else was, or things like okay. that. And so, maybe not. Not. Yeah. It's right. not. It, maybe bitch is not the right word, but but more aggressive. So in a competitive environment, and as a woman, and as a woman in mm -hmm. you know leadership position how mm -hmm. do we as women also be um, you know go for it without you know getting that label how do we mm -hmm. be competitive and you know so so i, I th this is this is an, i mean it's an, 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 i have brought sort of brought this up but i it's it's really difficult and i think i have always erred on the side of of being of trying to be liked um, but I've seen I've seen some women get ahead who push it a little more and are a little bit more aggressive in terms of not worrying about that, and and have done fine, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's probably it's a trade-off. Like I, you know, I don't I don't know I, I don't know whether one is better than the other. Mm -hmm. You know, um, well, I'm comfortable with myself the way I've you know, kind of managed yeah. it. But it's, you know, I've also seen women in particular and men fail when they've been um, sort of overly aggressive, overly uh, hierarchical, um, you know, and, and for women, bitchy or um, hard to approach, unapproachable. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, I, a lot of it depends on your culture, the culture of your company. Turner has been a fairly familial culture, fairly pleasant culture. Um, other companies, not so much. Mm -hmm. And I might not have succeeded in other places as well as I did. No, I think you would have. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, you it's, or, you would, or you adapt, you know? You adapt yeah. to your culture. And if, especially, I've been at this company for 20 years, over 20 years. So you kind of adapt to what the norms are. And I've adapted to new norms because the company's changing. Right. Um, and I, you know, I guess going back to, I think I'm fairly adaptable because I've, you know, done all these different things and I've been all these different places. Um, so I hope that bodes well, but, you know, we'll see. I think so. I mean, one of the things I shared in the last, um, the last talk was about when we're, we are in such a competitive industry, mm -hmm. but not to, you know, if you're the light coming into the dark, into the darkness, don't dim your light to conform to the darkness, right? You yeah. just continue to be who you are yeah. and stand, you know, for the good things that you stand for and not let the room change yeah. you. You change the room. Right. That's right. a great, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that I, I spent Monday afternoon at an offsite. Um, Turner is, is rolling out a program, which I think a lot of companies are doing, but it's called um, Moving from Unconscious Bias to Conscious Inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I've actually, this is my third session on this, so I, I did one, gosh, going back four or five years ago through um, Women in Cable at a, a program at Stanford, actually, was the first time I'd been introduced to the concept of conscientious bias. and. Um, I think probably people are familiar with it, which is that you, you, you don't necessarily know what your biases are. There are these things that happen, and they could be on any topic, any subject. It's not just diversity, it's anything. Mm -hmm. You have these things that happen in your head that you don't, that you don't necessarily recognize are happening. And um, so the first step is to understand that those things are happening, but the, the, where Turner is now is let's take it a step further, which is conscious inclusion, to make sure that we are being as inclusive as possible. And I bring that up to your point about bringing your full self because, and your, your authentic self, because I think companies now, a lot of companies, are looking for 
a diversity of all sorts of things mm -hmm. and all sorts of backgrounds and cultures and skill sets and mindsets that if you're at the right place, and, and I fully believe those are the kinds of companies you should look for, you, you show up with who you, as who you are. Now, you, there are norms that you have to conform to because that, that's, a, that's a part of work. And whether, you know, maybe people, maybe there's a dress code, or maybe you know, they look down on um, you know, showing up for work too late, or whatever it is, but, but definitely try to bring yourself to work, it's so important. And I think it is something that enlightened companies are looking for these days. Mm. Any final questions before we wrap it up? What's the most important skills that you think for somebody to develop like early on in their career? That's a, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I think Probably, I mean, there's so many answers to that, but at least in my experience at my company, the skill and the ability and the willingness to collaborate um, and, and, and realize that that's gonna benefit you in your career. I have worked and I still work with people who um, wanna hold on to projects because that makes them feel important or something, but our work culture now is so collaborative. You have to be a team player. Most, it's, it should be natural for you, but it's not natural for everybody. So mm -hmm. I think that's probably, it's not so much, I mean, it's a skill, it's a, it's a, it's a soft skill. Um, I think that's just so important. And then demonstrating that you're not afraid to take on the tough job, especially when you're, you're starting out in your career. Um, it's so impressive when somebody raises their hand and you're not, you know, for a project that's not the glory project. I mean, it just, the, as a manager, it's just. It, it, you take notice. You take notice yeah. and it goes back in here and then the conscious part of my mind or the unconscious part of my mind, and I'll remember that later when there's an opportunity. And so, you know, as, as bad as it might seem, or if, if no one is raising their hand, do it. I mean, it's going to matter. It's really going to matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, if someone's applying for, like, a job, do you think it's important for them to, because I, was, I wasn't sure if you um, studied media while you were in college. Oh, okay. Yeah, great question. No. Okay. Um, so, no, it's not important, in my opinion. Um, in fact, Well, if you studied media and you have something that you can show me that explains to me why that was a value, great. But it's not critical. Um, I was a, interestingly, international studies foreign affairs major, me not too. necessarily realizing yes. that I was going to end up in Asia because my specialty was Western Europe. Um, <laughs> mine, was, mine was Eastern Europe. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, East and West. So. Yeah. So it, but you know what I learned? It was it was a it was a solid liberal arts degree, and I know like liberal liberal arts degrees. I mean, some people don't think they're. I learned how to write. I learned how to think. Mm -hmm. I learned how to reason. I learned how to be analytical. I learned how to problem solve. All those things became so important in my yeah. career, and so I'm a huge proponent of that. I can't say everybody yeah. is, but yeah, um, because like. Uh, the the one thing I was confused about right now because I'm a junior mm -hmm. at the moment, but like. I'm trying to understand like whether or not it's really important for me on my resume for it to say like oh I've done like TV production and like I've done this but then explain it then um, on your cover letter because some people say just to have general media but like on my cover letter it's kind of confusing because I feel like everyone struggles with the cover letter like in making it actually stand out and not have too much information or yeah too much information. I would so this is getting very specific but mm -hmm. I would say the cover letter is not that important I mean, a lot of times people don't even see the cover letter. So if you oh, have really? some specific experience, it depends on, if you are applying through an online thing like Turner does, no one's seeing a cover letter. Now, if you have my name and you send me a cover letter, and because we had some connection, I might actually see it, but chances are you're, 
your first pass at a job when you get into the system, you might be able to, t no, I don't think the recruiters are looking at the cover letters. That's, I, 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 I'm in a formal mentoring program at, at Turner and we bring in a recruiter every session or every year and because it, it's junior level people who are in my group and we talk about how you know they can get their next job and the recruiter always says, the cover letter is not as important as what's in that resume. So if you have production experience and it is only through something you did at school, somehow get it in the resume because you're gonna need that, it's gonna need to pop. They have these keyword searches and they need to know that that's, right. and it's not, they're not necessarily right. searching your cover letter. Yeah, that was gonna be actually my next question. Sorry, <laughs> about the resume too. Uh, like was understanding like, if, cause I know a lot of people put it through the computer, but I don't know, some people are really <coughs> against like putting it through like a, like I know for Turner you guys have the um, online. Yeah. But like some people are like against it because they feel like they're not really seen because there's just so many people. Well, you have to at, at Turner you have to submit it online. Now whether you get an opportunity also outside of that, right. but there's a you have to have it in the system to be even part of the process. And um, I think there are a lot of companies like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, mandatory. Yeah, yeah. but. It, it is hard, I mean, you have, and we, we talked about this, but it is really important to come to things like this and make connections because mm -hmm. it's hard to get noticed in those computer, you know, it, it can happen. Um, You're but just blowing my mind though, because I'm about the whole cover letter thing. I mean, I, I read, mean, I, I, I read, you, you I read cover letters. Them. Sorry. You have to do them, but yeah. Cover letters in college, like they're just like, make sure you- Well, I remember that too, it's so funny that I mean, I still think it's important. Like, I read cover letters that come to me. So if it's not written well, or if but you're not expressing... But it's coming to you. So, but if, it's, right. if, if she doesn't have a contact right. at a company and it's just going straight into the... You know, maybe you get a contact later and, and mm -hmm. you can send a cover letter. And I don't... Or a cover email. You still have to email. write well. Yeah. You know, so yes. don't like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't well, think that's it's not important at I, all. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a whole speech about no <laughs> grammatical errors, no spelling errors, no any of that, because right. certain people, I mean, I... Oh, God, you know, you know, black mark, bad, you know... Yeah, and, and that, that's just a bad, you know... To me, if, if I see a cover letter that's not intelligently written, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't even care about yeah. the resume, to be honest. So, so but I don't see. I will tell you. I don't see too, cover letters. So, I mean, I get yeah. resumes all the time, but I don't see. So, so that s statement that's at the top of your resume, you be real careful about what you put there. Um, and then, if you're you're likely to get to me, you're probably just you'd send me an email and your resume is attached. So, if you want to call the cover letter that email, fine. Um, but yeah. it, and, it, and that, that does matter. But a lot of times, I just have resumes that some people have given me, and they just land on my desk where just the resume lands. Mm -hmm. And so I look at that, and I look at the experience, and I see if they're internships, and I see, you know, yeah. And I and I have somebody who gives me a referral. I mean, that means a lot. A referral means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, so and so recommended, you know, right. or. Yeah, so I want to just thank you so much for oh, being welcome. with us. It was fun. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. One of the things that Jennifer touched on in our conversation is taking risks and not being afraid to fail. And I think that's so important. Failure is a critical part of success. The thing is, we only hear about the successes and the wins, and we don't hear about the struggles and failures it took to get to the successes. Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb in a day, and the iPhone wasn't invented in a day either. It took time, it took mistakes, to constantly learn, iterate, and hone. So as you go about work and life, remember that failure is a part of the journey to success. So be encouraged and keep it moving. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Future Now Media Podcast. If you want to be in the audience or stream one of our Future Now events, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn for updates. Till next time, I'm Peggy Kim, and remember, a future now is a future one.